Good morning again, and thanks for joining us for worship this morning. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been studying the book of Exodus. In the past two weeks in particular, we've focused in on God delivering to Israel the Ten Commandments. Now, in case you didn't hear the last two sermons, or you might have forgotten, we're looking at them through the lens of God giving the Ten Commandments as an act of recreation. God is creating this new nation, His children, in His own image, out of the nothingness of the wilderness. And that recreation takes the shape of ten do's and don'ts. Now, as we hear Steve Reber read the next four commandments, I'm fully aware that none of us like to be told what to do. But who is it in your life that you will listen to when they do tell you what to do? Who has earned the right to tell you what you can and can't do? Let's listen to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Exodus, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God, this morning as we come and hear from your word, I ask that you would send your spirit into each of our hearts. Help us to be humble. Help us to hear the truth of the gospel contained in these words. Help convict our hearts. Help us to hear the healing that comes from your gospel. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. $167,000. That's how much a soul is worth, according to the devil. In the 1979 hit song, Devil Went Down to Georgia by the Charlie Daniels Band. If you'll remember, the devil wagers a fiddle of gold against Johnny's soul. Now, in 2013, Business Insider did a little study to see exactly how much Johnny's life, his soul, was worth. They found the volume of wood in an average violin and then swapped out wood for gold. They figured out that a fiddle of gold is almost 40 pounds worth of gold, which equals about $167,000. The purpose of this article was to discern how much a life was worth, and they looked at popular references to people exchanging their souls for something. They noted that Robert Johnson, the famous blues guitarist, supposedly exchanged his soul for great guitar skills. He went on to have a six-year career from 1932 to 1938, and according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, with the average working musician earning about $37,000 a year, he seemingly exchanged his soul for $241,000. At least it's a little improvement over Johnny. In the 1936 short story, The Devil and Daniel Webster, a man exchanges his soul for 10 years of prosperity. If you put him in the 95th percentile of all age earners, excuse me, he exchanged his soul for $1.75 million. Now, that's a big improvement. The article says that we don't have to listen to songs or media or stories because the EPA puts out and amends every year a value on the human life a value of statistical life, the VSL, which is currently at $10 million, which means that 
Homer Simpson was a bit off when he traded his soul for a donut valued at 99 cents. What is a person's worth to you? Honestly, I'm asking that question. What value do other people have in your eyes? And the reason I ask is because different backgrounds, different cultures, different religions, different worldviews have always had something to say about the values of other people. After the first four commandments, shaping the way that Israel is to relate to and worship God, God shifts slightly to begin creating in them the right attitude toward other people. There are a bunch of different ways that we can look at these four commandments. And again, let me apologize if we don't get to your favorite viewpoint on these commandments or don't answer a question that you might have. Please do send it in to us using the URL. We'd love to address that in our podcast. But this morning, what I want us to see is that the common thread that runs through these four commandments is that other people are incredibly valuable and are to be treated as such. God is building into the identity of His people an intrinsic respect and grace towards others beyond their utility. That assertion that people should be treated with inherent dignity is based on what God has already done and said before. The prior commandments that He's given and the reminder of their rescue in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These four commandments should be viewed through the lens of how God has already treated Israel and invited them to worship, work, and rest in Him. God says, in my family, people are more valuable than what they bring to the table. Beyond your needs and your narrative, people are to be objects of your grace. Those are our two points this morning, just two. Beyond your needs and narrative, people are to be objects of your grace. We're going to start by looking at this idea of needs and narrative, beyond your needs and narrative. Now, the, the appropriate place to start is by confessing that we are all incredibly selfish people. We're constantly worried about ourselves, how we look, how we are perceived, how we're doing, how we're progressing, how we feel, how we're comfortable or not. Augustine of Hippo, the, the fourth century African theologian, was probably the first person to use the Latin phrase, incravatus in se, to describe sin's effect on our lives, curved in upon ourselves. What that means is that I'm focused on myself all the time. I am totally wrapped up in my own thoughts, in my own actions, in my own outcome, and so are you. Not mine, but in your own, right? I I'm so overwhelmingly absorbed in what's happening in my own world that it screws up everything else. And the first way that it impacts how I relate to other people is by making me focus entirely on whether or not someone can meet my needs, right? In giving His people these commandments, God is building in Israel the attitude that people are more than just need meters. Take just two of these commandments. Do not steal and do not commit adultery. They cut directly against our instinct to devalue a person just to their ability to meet our needs or not. When you steal, you're not thinking about whether or not this person needs that object more than you. You're not thinking about where they got that object from, how dependent they are on it, what what role it plays in their story, what would happen if you took it from them. 
You've simply devalued them to the place where you think, I need that, I want that, I'll take that. The same is true for committing adultery. I have this desire, I have this need, and we devalue people as to whether or not they can meet that need. Whether or not God has gifted you with a spouse, we think, I am not having my needs met. I am not getting my needs met, so I'm going to go to someone else. Why? For a deeply committed, sacrificial relationship formed on covenantal vows? No, just to meet my need. Now, Stephen, I'm not actually interacting with other people. I'm not causing any problems anywhere. It's just a screen. No one's being hurt. You're wrong. Pornography is just as devaluing, if not more so, because you're devaluing all of humanity, yourself included, reducing yourself and everyone that you interact with to nothing more than a needs-based transaction. Eventually, that transactional mindset bleeds out into the people that you are face-to-face with every day. You reduce people to nothing more than meeting your needs. God says, it's just not enough. Needs-based interaction, it's not enough. People are more valuable than that. They're more valuable than what they bring to your life. I have created every human in my own image, and that fact alone brings them dignity. So honor your parents. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. People are more than need meters. Now, here's the problem. We have become a pretty independent culture. We're actually so self-sufficient that maybe you can convince yourself you're not looking to other people to meet your needs. You're not trying to, to go and find what you're looking for in other people. You can just provide it for yourself. You think you can keep these commandments if that's really what they're about. But there's another layer here, something that is incredibly important for us to see, and that is the temptation to reduce people's value to how they fit into your narrative. At some point in your schooling, you probably had to read William Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. Just as a refresher, Hamlet is a prince who is consumed by the thought that his uncle killed his father in order to take the crown. Now, you probably have forgotten that there are two insignificant characters in this story named Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. They really don't have much to do with the story at all. They kind of weave into the narrative and back out, weave into the narrative and back out, weave into the narrative and die. They're just kind of placeholders in the midst of Hamlet's story. But playwright Tom Stoppard in 1966 wrote another play, a parallel story called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. And in that story, it's not about Hamlet. It's about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. What's amazing is that their storyline weaves in and out of Hamlet. There are portions of Stoppard's play that are exactly the same as Shakespeare's when their, their lines cross. But what you see in reading this play is that while they may have just been placeholders in Hamlet's story, they were living in their own narrative, in their own life. They were way more than just placeholders. We all have an inner monologue. We all have a storyline running through our heads about life, about our role in it. And for most of us, we operate day in and day out under the assumption that we've got it right. Like I've figured this thing out. And things are good until we come into contact with someone whose narrative clashes with ours. And then what do we do? Well, usually I try to convince the other person, I've got it right. You should live life my way. 
You should see things from my viewpoint. I've got this figured out. Well, they do the same. They try to convince me that they've got it figured out. Now, the question becomes, what do we do when we can't agree? How do we interact with people that we can't agree with? Well, God says, my children are to operate under the assumption that other people are valuable, that their viewpoint is not just something to disregard. Take, for example, this commandment, honor your father and mother. Whether you were raised by two parents, one parent, or other adults that are not biologically your parents, each one of us has been shaped and formed by the narratives our parents wrote, period. It's inescapable. And I can guarantee at some point in your life, their narrative clashed with the narrative you had for yourself, probably still is clashing with the narrative that you have for yourself. So how should we respond? Well, the easiest way to respond is just by writing them off. They're clueless, totally out of touch. They don't know what's going on. Why should I listen to them? Right? Do you remember saying things like, they don't know what it's like to be 15? We have all just written parents off, people we disagree with at points. Is that okay? Is that appropriate? What God says is, there is a structure that I have built into uninitiated relationships, and when you just write them off, you're devaluing them. Now, I understand fully that honoring parents looks very different in very different situations. For some of you, you've, you've had incredibly complicated family histories, and you've spent a long number of hours in counseling. For some of you, you should spend long numbers of hours in counseling talking about your family history, and that's okay. That is a good thing. But just writing people off because their narrative for life conflicts with yours, that's just devaluing them because they don't fit into what you think is right. Now, what about this last commandment, the one you haven't mentioned, thou shalt not kill? How are you going to get this one in here, Stephen? Let's see you do that. Well, honestly, we have to look at how Jesus talks about this commandment in Matthew 5, 21, where he says that being angry with your brother, hating him in your heart, insulting your brother, calling him raka, you fool, it's the same as breaking this commandment. When do I call people names to their face or behind their backs? When, when do I insult people? When do I get angry with people and hate them in my heart? Well, it's when they don't fit so nicely and neatly into the position I've written for them in my narrative. That's the exact situation that our society and our church is in the middle of right now. We are all being affected by this coronavirus. Everyone is enduring this shelter in place but each one of us is walking in the midst of our own narrative, looking out at all the other narratives out there and thinking, what a bunch of idiots, you're going to get us all killed. Or what a bunch of conformist wimps. We're all calling each other names. We're all insulting people. We're all killing people in our hearts with our minds and our anger. I know this is true. I've seen this at work in the midst of our people the people of Grace South Bay. You might be sitting there back against the couch, arms folded, saying, not me. I know what I think is right, but I'm not doing all those things to other people. Let me ask you this diagnostic question. What is your reaction when someone's view of reengaging with society differs from yours? How do you respond when you hear someone say, you know what, we just need to get back out there, go out to eat again, 
go shopping again, go to the beach together, sit in driveways and have happy hour together? What about when you hear that people are in favor of extending the shelter in place, of listening to what the government and health officials are saying, especially when it means a reduction in your personal freedoms? How do you respond then? Let me take a guess. You think, how can these people believe that thing? That's what I think. I think, I'm right. How do they not see it this way? It seems so obvious. Why are those people so dense that they can't figure this out? Guess what? We've devalued people. They don't fit into our narratives. They don't fit into what we think is right. So we hate them, call them names, make fun of them, yell at them, get angry at them. It's devaluing. We tend to see people as either utilities to meet our needs or placeholders in our narratives. But God, in these commandments, say people are to be objects of grace. That's our second point. People are to be objects of grace. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, these four commandments should be based on the fact that God has already rescued Israel and has already invited them to worship Him, to work, and to rest in Him. Look at it this way. The first three commandments that we've already looked at, the first three commandments communicate to Israel, you are walking with the one true story writer, the author. You are worshiping the God who has started creation, keeps all of history going, and will bring everything to the end. This is not your narrative, Israel. This is God's narrative, and He simply invited you to be a part of it. The fourth commandment, calling Israel to work for six days and rest one day, is based on the reality that God has already met their deepest need and promised to continue to meet their needs as, his, as their rescuer. God says, it's not your narrative. It's not about your needs. I've already taken care of both of those things, which means you're not a slave to them anymore. You don't have to live your life looking to other people to meet your needs. You don't have to live your life looking for other people to affirm your narrative. You've already been given those things. You're free. You're free. So go and interact with people the way God's freed family does, with dignity and sacrifice and grace and love. That's the invitation of these four commandments, is to approach people and disagreements out of a place of freedom. And what does that look like? Well, the rest of Scripture tells us through uh, uh, examples and applications. Take, for instance, Romans 14. The Apostle Paul says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. See, when you're a slave to need and narrative, you pass judgment. You demand that people get in line, that they fill their place in your narrative, that they meet the needs that you have. And if not, you either put a stumbling block in their path or you become a stumbling block yourself. Now, if you've been freed from those things, you're gracious. You're gracious to other people. And grace is humble and it's curious. It never presumes itself to be right. It always asks questions of others rather than assuming it understands. 
How about another passage? James chapter 1, verse 19 says that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow to anger. That sounds incredibly familiar. In fact, that's exactly the words that God will use to describe Himself to Moses in 14 short chapters. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God's children reflect their Father. Brett McCracken, who is an author, wrote a blog post for the Gospel Coalition this past week uh, applying a lot of this to the church as it tries to look at re-entering into corporate worship, into engaging in the culture at large. It was a great article. It fed some of this sermon. It also stole a lot of my thunder. But I wanted to read this short portion because he says it in a way that I don't think I could say it any better. Brett writes this, at a time when self-idolatry is being exposed in ugly ways, the church has an opportunity to model love that places the interests of others above the self. For example, someone might find it personally difficult, even maddening, to have to wear a mask during church and stay six feet away from everyone at all times. You might think these precautions are a needless overreaction. But here's the thing. Even if it turns out that you're right, can you not sacrifice your ideal for a season out of love for others who believe the precautions are necessary? Even if you personally think it is silly or even cowardly for someone to stay at home after the church opens again on Sundays, can you not heed Paul's wisdom in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9? Be careful, however, that your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Likewise, those who think the lockdown should continue should not pass judgment on those who question the wisdom of the government's ongoing restrictions. Churches, and I would add Christians, should strive to honor people on both sides of the spectrum. Respect, love, sacrifice, grace. That's the invitation of which we see here in these four commandments. Now, I'm hoping that you took an opportunity to assess your own heart, to sit back and look honestly. I'm praying that you allowed the Holy Spirit to convict you of your attitudes and your words and your actions. And if you have, then you're sitting there like me, feeling pretty crummy, feeling beat down and at a loss of where to begin, how to begin to make up ground, what to do next. Where do you even start? Verse 2. That's why I included verse 2. We have to always return to see what God has done for us. You who bring absolutely nothing to the spiritual table were so valuable to God that He took on flesh and lived a life of service, perfectly obeying every single one of these laws and dying unjustly on the cross in your place. Jesus died for you, not as someone who was almost there and just needed a little bit of help, but as His enemies. Jesus died for you to make you God's children. He rescued each one of us who have faith in Him. And these commandments that we have for us, recorded in Exodus 20, are invitations to see that rescued people rescue people. 
How can we rescue people today? What is it that we need to rescue people from? Well, how about the pain that you've caused someone else? How do you rescue them from that? You go to them and repent. That is the behavior of God's family, repentance. What about the people who are suffering from the guilt of how they've hurt you? You go to them and you forgive them. That is the attitude of God's family. The invitation of these commandments is to see other people as so incredibly valuable that you would sacrifice your comfort, your security, your narrative, and your needs for them, just as God has done for you. And in that way, you are invited to rescue others as you have been rescued. Let's pray. God, it's humbling to think that we weren't good, not even a little bit, when Jesus chose to die for us. He knew that we would put our own needs and our own narrative ahead of him, and yet he said, I'll take this on me. We thank you that he willingly did that and that he cried out, it, was, it is finished, that he died and didn't stay dead but rose again to guarantee that those who are walking in him, who have been cleansed by his blood, are now guaranteed new life not just in the future, but new life now. Help us to take hold of that and to love others, to give others grace, to give others respect, to free others by repenting and forgiving, even this morning. We thank you that you've given that power through the Holy Spirit to us, and we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.